He had the brain of a genius and the body of an action figure, and he took the wrestling world by storm. Today, we talk about Stanislav Zabisco. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. We are here, we are back, and so are you. You are here with us. You pressed the button, you downloaded the episode, maybe you're on a jog, maybe you're just blowing through your, your data because you're, you're at work and the Wi-Fi password changed yet again. Um, what the heck am I even talking about? Who the hell really knows? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for this show, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. I love the history. I love the stories of the past and the crazy twists and turns that this business has taken. And I'm not here by myself. I am here as always with the 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 Frankenstein to my Wolfman. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Capital old chap, co-piloting the Hippodrome Express, the Hippodrome Technodrome, here in Dimension XY Carney Z. Uh, capital to see you again. I love being here. I love talking about this. I love the magical ride that we have taken with this show. Totally. And, and you know, if this is your first time listening, welcome. You're going to hear a crazy story, and hopefully you dive back and listen to the rest. For those of you who have been along for the ride, or at least very recently, we are continuing the kind of the theme of late, that uh, that bridge in the wrestling business between the kind of Gotch Hackenschmidt era and the gold dust trio era like it's like anything in history people look at the the broad strokes and they say oh well this is where it dipped here and this is where it came back up meanwhile all sorts of crazy interesting successes and failures and crazy times happen in those gaps they just kind of get swept under the rug for the purpose of keeping everything as a nice simple survey of the uh, situation but this was a wild time in wrestling. This is when the the old style of wrestling was dying away. This is when the the the, the barrel-chested Greco-Roman men were kind of on their their last leg as far as being able to draw and compete and be relevant. And these crazy up-and-comers, the uh, the grandchildren philosophically of Farmer Burns, were were starting to ride out into the world and make waves. It was like the Wild West all over again in the wrestling business. So many, so much power changing hands. So many people fighting for spots that had been abandoned by the old people that uh, we've talked about in previous episodes. It was chaos. And how much do we love chaos on this show? Chaos is the ladder that this show climbs every single episode, darling. Yes, it was a, a time of, of, you know, two open thrones, open debates. Who was the best? The king was dead. What was the best style? The dominant style was dethroned. You know, we were in between sort of the reemergence and what everyone now considers the beginning of that time, the Goldust Trio and all that, and, and going through the transition of the image of the sport itself from, uh, you know, Greco getting some dirt on its name on top of being considered sort of the, the more older, boring style versus catch-as-catch-can, which was new and exciting. It was, it was a time of evolution and change. And that really got encapsulated in our last episode with that 1915 tournament. We saw how trying to present things in the old way failed and how almost by, you know, like destiny, the new showbiz flashy crazy way of, uh, of telling stories in the ring was 
the de facto way to do business. The guys like George Lurich and uh, you know Hackenschmidt, who had you know his his career had kind of you know completely collapsed at that point, but that was no longer what people wanted to see. That's not what people wanted to pay to see. But there were still these these guys like. Lurch, like Aberg, and like our subject today, Stanislaw Zabisco, that bridged this entire era from from the uh, you know before the the Gotch the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt matches all the way into the twenties. You know he lived a long, prosperous, crazy life, and we're going to be talking about his life in that uh, that kind of gap period and one thing i do want to bring up and we talk about this a lot is we do our best we find the best information that uh, one can uh, case in point with this story I, I brought a lot from his autobiography but anybody in showbiz telling their autobiography especially in a, the days before fact checking you really have to take everything with a grain of salt especially from somebody like this who told crazy stories about George Lurich being executed in, uh, in, in, in St. Petersburg and how he had to wrestle for his life after being accused of being a spy and how if he had lost this match, uh, you know, the, the, the Bolsheviks would have murdered him right there. This is a man who, though he stood tall as a competitor and as a wrestling legend, he was also a man who loved to make his tails tall as well. Yes, bullshitter, extraordinaire, and yeah, he was one of those guys that sort of bridged that time gap, and as we found out, nerds, if you're a side character in enough of these episodes, eventually you might get your own, and that's where we find ourselves today, because he really is, you, you see him weaving in and out of, of stories throughout our entire run so far, because he was involved in basically the end of the original era and bridging the gap into what we would consider the start of the more modern era of like territory wrestling. Exactly, and he is a guy, you, you heard about him in our you know, Gotch and Hackenschmidt episodes. Uh, his brother was a main player in the 1915 tournament. Uh, Stanislaus did have uh, his match with, uh, you know, with Georg Lurch that we talked about. So yeah, we, we kind of, I love these type of characters where, yeah, they were just kind of background characters in the big legendary star stories. But then when you dig in, holy shit, they, their stories are just as crazy, if not more so, because you're like, oh man, look at that. It's like Star Wars. You see, you know, Boba Fett standing totally. behind Jabba the Hutt and you want to be like, oh man, what's that guy's story? And then, and then you can, you know, explore that so the history of wrestling just keeps rewarding us with uh, what we're putting into it and like I said this is the the closest thing to the truth that I was able to put together and you know we'll kind of uh, debate some of the uh, the topics on that but that's uh, you know that's that's kind of where we're where we're at right now and right out of the gate we find conflicting information uh, even looking for his birth date many sources claimed it was April 1st 1879, though in his 1937 autobiography, On the Rings of the Whole World, he claimed it was 1881. I don't really see any weird con to pull by lying about being born two years earlier, so I assume the 1881 date is the correct one. But yeah, that's 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 the fun of this, where it's like, even trying to find out when some of these people were born is a, is a gosh darn adventure. Yeah, but either way, it's an April Fool's, apparently. So we're off to the, the worker's start. We know the bullshit came right out of the womb with this one. And he was born in uh, Jaloa, um, 
I'm gonna be botching a lot of these Polish words, Polish names, Polish uh, towns, even though this is where my, uh, you know, my people hail from, but uh, until uh, you know, it was time to chase the Jews out, so we had to uh, you know, go somewhere else. But I'm still going to be botching these plenty. I'm sorry to any Polish people that might be listening. I'm doing my best. And this will also tie into where the names of Bisco came from, be a bit of a callback in a bit. But he was born in a town near Krakow, Poland, but at the time it was still part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that wouldn't collapse until the end of the First World War. So there were Polish people, there was a Polish culture, but just there was no Polish nation at the time. And he was born Jan Stanislaw Siganowicz, the name Zabisko was the work name he chose later on, and for good reason. Zabisko was a knight in the 1900, as in the year 1900, historic novel The Knights of the Cross by Henryk Sienkiewicz. And at the time, again, there was no Poland, and the Polish people lived under Austro-Hungary, Germany, or Russian rule. And this book was about brave knights standing up to foreign occupation, but it was placed in the Middle Ages to avoid Russian censorship at the time. This is where the line of truth and bullshit will start blurring already. Zabisco claimed that he was given this nickname as a child for being very brave and tough, even though the book wasn't published until he was around 20 years old. So again, keep in mind that this is the guy who told outlandish stories like the uh, like the St. Petersburg story, various crazy uh, crazy tales. So again, being a bit of a self-promoter, claiming that you were awarded this this cool nickname for being a rad kid, when in truth you probably just uh, you know gave it to yourself when you were uh, like 20, 22. Yeah, especially he wanted that extra hipster cred that he he had it before it was cool, before it came out and everybody knew about it. He he beat the he beat the release date. Hey, uh, it makes me think of a funny comedian friend of mine, Chris Charpentier, used to do a bit about, you know who I I, I think we all hate people who give themselves nicknames and people who refer to themselves in the third person, and that's too bad because Daddy does both. <laughs> Chongo does too, darling. Capital form, yes. And like we've seen in many stories from this era, the cultures living under wider empire rule were starting to have a sense of identity and pride, much of which came through in sports. Uh, we saw this with Hackenschmidt, we saw this with Lurich. It's, it's something you see a lot in these cultures that were absorbed into empires around this time trying to find a sense of identity. But he didn't spend much time in Poland as a young man. His family moved to Vienna soon after he was born, from which he was typically announced in European tournaments. And the young Stanislaw was an absolute prodigy. He studied law, music, philosophy, and reportedly spoke 11 languages, which is not the usual background you find in wrestling even in those days. So this was a man who was a, just, just a genius across the board, and still somehow fell into wrestling. <laughs> yeah, or maybe that's how he ended up there because, you know, the, the creative cream galvanates at the top. There's so much cross interest if you have, you know, the, the, the skill set that you just described, right? I mean, he's basically like a spy. He has the skill set of like a secret agent and, and that's basically, he's gonna create his own st 
story and his own character, and he's just building up the the arsenal to do that, man. It's very, and that's probably why he was so successful. Yeah, because you know, setting him, putting himself aside from the uh, the other brainiacs, he also possessed natural strength and athletic ability, which led him to be trained by. This one's going to be bad, Vladimir's. Svakovich, and he was trained in fencing, swimming, track and field, and of course, the French wrestling style, as Greco-Roman was often referred to. And then, back in Poland in his early teens, he took up wrestling seriously under the coaching of Snezezi Rusinski in Krakow. He also trained at the Sokol, which is Falcon, gym, which was very much based on the German gymnasium concept we've discussed when looking at Europe in the late 1800s, where it was structured physical training with emphasis on the cultural and mental advancement of trainees and a sense of patriotism for the Polish people. So he just had a natural build for this, and he just fell in with the right people to train him the right way, and he, 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 was, he was just a natural. And he was a renaissance man it sounds like at that time from a small village he probably had he probably had a rare amount of access to this level of education on all these different fronts and he took full advantage of it and that's pretty awesome it shows the ambition and it shows the drive that it takes to undertake and excel at so many things simultaneously and he was built like a You'll get a pretty good mental picture of this if you don't look him up on Google. He was five foot eight, but he would weigh 265 pounds Ooh. at his athletic peak. The dreaded, muscly, beer barrel build that would make a man very successful in Greco-Roman wrestling. Why is that? How, how, how does that build really play into a, an upper body game like Greco-Roman? Oh, that is the absolute, probably most ideal body type for Greco-Roman wrestling because Greco-Roman is about having a low center of gravity and having a strong base and leverage. You, It's only upper body locks. There's no foot sweeps. There's no changing and going after the legs. So it's all about who can get a lower grip on the upper body and use torque and leverage, get their head inside head position, what we call head fighting with inside grips. And it's hard to get inside on a human fire hydrant, man. He's almost built... He might have the most perfect uh, uh, tail of the tape of any of the Greco legends that we've covered so far. And taking that natural athletic ability, I, I assume this was probably a romantic thing for, uh, for a kid like this to do. He, of course, joined the circus. <laughs> and depending on which interview he gave or if it was in his autobiography or at what point he told the story, he joined the Krakow Sokol Circus when he was 15, though he also claimed sixth grade at other times. And this might just be me not knowing how old people were in the sixth grade in late 19th century Polish Austro-Hungary schools, and in his autobiography, he claimed it was just on the weekends where he would wrestle in front of thousands of people and do strongman tricks. Well, it's not the first time we've seen that sort of like hybrid between the two, you know, carny subcultures of circus performers and wrestlers, especially when you factor in that he came from those gymnasium style academies where they I mean literally you're, you're talking about unicycling you're talking about floor gymnastic routines juggling the 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 cross styles of fitness culture that they had at those gymnasiums a lot of that were basically circus trick type shit 
Yeah, that's where the, the, the primary outlet creatively and financially and everything was tended to be the circus, uh, you know, like atmosphere. It's the same thing in the U.S. after the Civil War. Out there, it was the same thing. You know, you, you would be part of that circus act. That's where, for the most part, money was to be made. Circus was the show, man. And as the story goes, Zabisco heard that a famous Polish athlete named Petrosinski was in Colonia, definitely butcher that one, as he took a train to meet his sports idol there. He saw the poster for the circus show and ended up meeting the circus director, uh, Rosenkantz, and Zabisco started as a strongman since there were no other wrestlers at the time and he was paid 10 coroni a day, which he put aside for his education. But it was when wrestler Adolf Setch joined the circus, Zabisco had his first real taste of wrestling and showbiz wrestling. The big challenge was Specht having an open challenge for 1,000 coroni. Zabisco was to wrestle him for 10 minutes and make 10 coroni for the worked match. So he was going to be the guy who comes out and challenges the wrestler very much in the carnival style, and it went well. The next night, it was 15 minutes. But the young Zabisco didn't much care for worked matches and wanted to have a real match with Specs. The circus director let him do it, and Spex schooled him and beat him in ah, half an hour. I was hoping that was what was going to happen. The, yeah, the beaten and humiliated Zabisco left the circus and returned to Krakow. Take that, young boy. That's right. You thought shit was sweet because we were working light. Turns out I was taking it easy on you. And that, that is something I think oh, anybody who's done martial arts or fighting or MMA, at a certain point you like look at your coach and be like, it's my time, old man. Yeah. You, you think you're you think you're ready for a much bigger bite than you actually are, and you fucking choke on it hard in front of everyone. It is one of the most beautiful things to behold in all of sport, combat, and martial art. The day the the student thinks they're grown and they're wrong. <laughs> that is a that is a beautiful, timeless thing. I mean, from the Lion King on down, man. Back home, he was planning his next moves in life, and in 1901, Władysław Pitlazinski, the most famous Polish wrestler at the time, came to Krakow, and the young Zabisco met him and became his training partner. Pitlazinski, uh, he was training for a big tournament in Berlin and brought along his younger training partner for competition. There, Zabisco had several wins at this tournament before losing to Laurent Le uh, Bucaruz. I always screw that guy's name up. We talked about him in, uh, you know, I think back in the, uh, the uh, heck, I think that was all the way back when we were talking about Muldoon, last time we really talked about that guy. It might have been, yeah. Um, still didn't uh, learn how to pronounce his name very smoothly, but uh, that's, that's on me. Um, However, he was defeated by uh, Laurent Le Buckaroo and injured his knee so badly that he thought he might have to give up wrestling. Fortunately, he healed quickly and returned to training, and the tournament the, uh, that he got hurt at was, of course, won by George Hackenschmidt, as many were in those days. Well, it's, you know, for one, it just shows that you are on the right path if you are in and on a show and in a tournament where Hackenschmidt's at. Especially if that's not happening in the United States, then you're definitely on the right track at this point. He's, he's, in, the, he's in the deep water with the sharks. And as soon as his knee was healed, uh, Pitlazinski invited Zabisco to go do a circus tour with him through uh, Sichinadek, uh, 
Plokloek and Pluk, I, those are all things I completely mispronounced. Again, I apologize to any uh, native Poles. But there he was finally making enough money to even send some home to his family. He was cleaning up on this circus tour, working with the biggest name in the area. And during this tour, he made friends with another young wrestler named uh, Vasilewski, who was nicknamed the Elephant because of his large size. But one day they went swimming and the Elephant uh, Vasilewski drowned despite Stanislaus' effort to save him. Zabisco was clearly affected by this because he soon left Krakow and returned to Vienna where he began training seriously in physical culture, AKA weightlifting and, uh, you know, trying to turn his body into a Greek God level uh, like, you, like you see in all his photographs, if you look at all his photographs. Dude, that's fucked up. He had like an Artex moment. That's probably why he went to the gym so hard after that. He's like, I must pull out the elephant. Like that's, oh man, tragic. That took a totally different turn than I thought it was going to. Oh, RIP elephant. And there in Vienna, he wrestled a man referred to as uh, uh, Tomasovitz, who was most likely the local standout wrestler, Anton uh, Tomasovich. And Zabisco was victorious, and this made him local famous enough that German wrestler Michael Hitzler, Hitzler, pronunciation is important with that name, offered to take him to Bucharest for a big tournament. Leading up to this, Zabisco competed in several local matches to make some money. And according to the man himself in his autobiography, uh, Stanislaus, during the tournament, asked Hitzler, who was running the tournament, if anyone other than himself had a chance at first prize. And Hitzler invited him to a sparring session, telling him that if Stanislaus beat him, Zabisco would get the first prize money right there. He claims that he beat Hitzler after a few hours, who then got angry and didn't pay him at all before he returned to Krakow after winning first place in the tournament. That shows me right there that he is legitimately a genius because that is probably the most eloquent elegant and strategic way I have ever heard hey am I going over brother like that was so beautiful the way he framed that and phrased that I'm stealing it I'm stealing it good shit yeah it, it does, it's one of those things where the way he worded it or the way it was translated it makes me wonder if that was a uh, you know it letting us know that it was a worked finish or if it was just like a weird challenge on the side or if he just felt the need to tell some sort of uh, weird like, lie to put himself over more than just winning the tournament a lot of ways to interpret this a lot of ways to go with it in the fall of 1902 he was in riga latvia for another tournament that ran october 6th through november 17th one of those long long tournaments he didn't place and the tournament was won by georg lurich in 1903 he was wrestling in Lodz, uh and from what i could find he was working at the local circus uh Divinge, and Jörg Lurich, Alexander Aberg, and Nikolai Petrov were performing at the local Apollo Theater with a different promoter. And Zabisco challenged all three. Challenge was not considered or even answered. Nothing came of it. And though he was considered a hot up-and-comer with serious potential, it wasn't until the 1903 Casino Day Paris Tournament, 
shockingly taking place in Paris, that his star began to shine in, on the international wrestling stage. Right out of the gate, he made an impression in his first match, defeating the allegedly seven-foot-tall Serbian giant Simon Antonovic. The match lasted an hour and a half, and according to Zabisco, this more or less ended Antonovic's career, who gave up on sports, became an alcoholic, and died broke in a Brussels hotel room. Thoughts and prayers to the hotel staff that had to lug him out of the room, which was hopefully on the first floor. Yeah, that is, that I think is probably, I can totally see one on the one hand why that would build his fame. You beat on to a low resolution understanding on the outside that's a guy five foot eight fighting a seven foot tall person you're going to think that that giant has the huge advantage but again like we talked about earlier the fire hydrant in that situation has the advantage because we're doing a game of trying to get lower center of gravity and getting a lower leverage body lock and good luck to Shaq mctall legs he got obviously just what like internal body damage from the body lock because i mean was it directly correlated to their match that he passed after this or well, well nobody you know whether that last part was true or not who the hell can say whether the, that he just broke this wrestler's spirit so bad that he he became a wandering alcoholic and uh, you know died of a broken heart after after how i smashed him in front of everyone it, it feels like a a lot of bullshit, and yeah, I'm sure you know the you know this big Serbian came to a bad end, but it probably wasn't connected, and he's just trying to take credit for it to be like, yes, I'm the one who broke him so bad. He uh, you know he ended up on Skid Row uh, like like he did, but true or not on that part, the match and the tournament win turned him into quite the star with the sporting press. He ended up placing third in the tournament, which isn't bad, and spent the rest of 1903 and 1904 touring and competing all across Eastern Europe and Russia. Looking back, he complained about the money, but who doesn't? Yeah, I would imagine the money of touring Russia in 1904 on the undercard is not going to be, you know, the kind of thing you're going to be able to to, to save for the grandkitties, as they say. But, I mean, he's well on his way. I mean, he's still in his 20s. He hasn't even crossed He hasn't even crossed over into, you know, the Americas yet. And he's doing his thing. He's already been on shows and in competition with some of the, the guys that, that defined the era. And, you know, he's not even... One thing I think is very interesting is even though he's got that build, it... it kind of seems like he's if you had to sort of rate rank his styles it's like his deepest training is in carny wrestling even more than greco you know oh absolutely you know, greco was the kind of de facto default style you would learn in that area and in those type of gymnasiums but he did more or less have the circus education that so many wrestlers before and totally. after, uh, after did and at this point i found one story from him and this is one of those stories i i just i, I read it like four times until my brain accepted what i read <laughs> because right. he told a story of falling in love with a woman named mariski who was married with a child but he won her away by having a fencing duel with her husband. And as they were set to get married, she died of tuberculosis. And while I have a very hard time believing any part of this, at the same time, stranger things were known to happen in the late 1800s in, uh, in Eastern Europe. It sounds like something out of a goddamn Russian romance novel, but it's also like 
that sounds like the sort of crazy thing uh, that, that you know maybe actually could have happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I 200% buy it, and I'll tell you why. One, because earlier when he was training at the gymnasium, one of the one of the categories you mentioned was fencing, and I was hoping that was coming back into the story. And two, think about it like this: if you are this feared fighter, this feared professional wrestler, and you have some sort of like lovers quarrel with someone and you want to kind of like have an, a fair ground or some sort of like uh you know they want to have a fight about it but you can't fight a, a wrestling champion a, a sword fight would make sense plus he trained so maybe he thought he was giving the okie doke yeah we don't have to wrestle let's uh let's uh fence how about that yeah i believe it yeah it, it seems very war and peace very uh you know uh, very, very, like i said very very sweeping russian drama whether it's true or not i can't say but it's a hell of a story either way and you know whether he, you know, this happened, or if he was a, a grieving, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a fiance who, uh, you know, who, you know, had to, you know, pay for a funeral for, uh, you know, this woman. Who the hell knows what the situation is? But at this time, he was mostly being a student at the University of Vienna. Once again, covering topics from music to gymnastics to philosophy, and worked on his body until he was listed in the, I think this was a publication, Health and Strength as one of Europe's elite Greco-Roman wrestlers. Imagine being in your average philosophy class, you know, being a student like that, and having that fucking guy in your class, where it's like all the, like, you know, like pale, like aristocratic uh, kids trying to learn, uh, their, take their philosophy lessons, and then two uh, seats over is this fucking gorilla who's just as smart as you, just as good at you with all this stuff, but he could rip you in half like a phone book. Yeah, it's like Hank McCoy from the X-Men meets uh, a young Mr. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, I just see that this huge, too big for his desk dude. He's like trying to Clark Kennett with the... Hello! I can actually relate a little bit because uh, I went to a Buddhist college in Boulder called Naropa, which was like just the hip, rich kid, hippie centric. Uh, you know, the, people always make jokes about how you could get your uh, degree in basket weaving, but it was very much like meditation and Buddhism. Great psychology program, which is what I, I was going for, but at the same time, I was fighting pro. So it's all these like hippie kids like wanting to find enlightenment and uh, you know like meet you know fucking uh, Allen Ginsberg because that's he was still alive at that point. Meanwhile, there is 215 uh, pound you know 19 year old Nick walking around with bruised knuckles and a black eye and a bandaid on my face constantly. You definitely uh, you know feel the eyes on you because you might as well be an escape circus bear uh, you know you know running through the uh, through the classroom. So I kind of I can feel you know for him in this uh, in this sense. It's a uh, Definitely a weird place to be when you're that smart, but also uh, that that capable of, uh, of of athletic excellence. I guess we'll say. Oh yeah, I, I remember once where I had to take a collegiate final for uh, for biochemistry on the same day that the Pan Am Games were down in Irvine. Uh, it was my first time competing gi in the Pan Ams at Purple Belt. Needless to say, I got choked out and I fucked up my test. It was a terrible day, over for two. And it, it, 
it, again, it's it's just it's very funny to think about these these people being like, oh um, yes, hello fellow philosophy students. Um, yes, I, like I just spent the summer like clerking at my my father's law practice, and and then I, I we went to the opera and met this duke, and I, I might be able to intern with uh, his cousins, uh, you know, like whatever at the at the palace. What 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 did you, what what did you used to do? Oh, um, I was part of a circus, and I was a strong man, and then I would wrestle people, and we would go town to town doing that. Oh, well, that's much different from my background. I'm going to, uh, you know, go uh, go over here now. So yeah, it's it's it just like you'd almost make a sitcom out of the situation. I feel like there's a there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of wackiness. You wouldn't need, even need a, a laugh track to uh, to sell. But uh, you know, that's uh, that's just how he lived and how many people have lived before and since. And he graduated with a law degree at the age of 24. All of this has that we have talked about is before the age of 24. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it a Stannis law degree? Oh, I will. I, you know what? I'm, I'm hitting, I'm pressing the pause button, and we're going to have a very serious talk about this, young man. Puns are forbidden. Uh, <laughs> and at this point, he was conscripted to do his one year of military service as most... Eastern European countries uh, insisted, and he lasted a few months there before being discharged as unfit for duty. No details seem to be available on that, but I can't imagine this guy is anything less than uh, fit for duty at the highest goddamn level. So I have a feeling it's kind of like the, uh, you know, Hackett Schmidt with uh, his trainer who, you know, he probably had a good connection or a uh, or a fan in the uh, in, in, in the office that kept him from putting his uh, career, wrestling career on hold for too long and got him back out into the world. Yeah, this guy is just showing to be what a high-level cerebral worker this is the game right here the original man this guy is working it and it's just so funny to think about like whoever had to fill out that paperwork it's like oh this guy's uh, you know five you know you know five yeah. eight which is you know not terrible. this guy who we just lifted at listed as one of the the nation's greatest sportsmen is yeah, unfit for service yeah this uh, this 24 year old <laughs> law student this uh, brilliant, uh you know, who killed a giant and like yeah who uh, you know can, can like you know pick probably pick up a horse and throw it over another horse but oh no you know this is a guy we can't use in the military so yeah he definitely had a fan or a connection uh you know higher up to go let's get him back out there because i want to uh you know i want i want him to to be a wrestler or whatever so yeah so having left the army he returned home to his family his brother vladek was around 10 years old at the time depending on which birthday to you believe and we talked about him a lot in the 1915 tournament because he also became quite the legendary wrestler and stanislaus went full-blown big brother teaching him how to work out how to diet how to be a better person and student and in his autobiography he spent a lot of time talking about how children should be raised and trained the and this probably came from both the success he felt he achieved from such programs and structure and that the rather nihilistic turn of the century youth were very self-destructive uh, you know not really seeing a lot of future uh, you know ahead of them boy it's a good thing they didn't know about World War one or they probably would have been even worse but he got very philosophic about how you raise a good kid to be a good citizen who is a healthy and uh, you know athletic and he put that all into his younger brother and he also held himself and all wrestlers to a high standard of fitness and training he believed a wrestler should train four hours every day an hour and a half of free exercise an hour of actual wrestling and the rest walking or running 
He didn't also believe that wrestlers should eat as much food as he often saw them doing, breaking from the idea that exercise plus lots of food equals lots of strength. So, wait, this guy, like, was, like, cutting weight? He, how enormous was this guy, man? This is him trying to be lean and mean. I was imagining him eating, like, a dozen eggs for breakfast every day to keep that weight up, man. Yeah, I, like, I feel like, once again, it's like you go through the translations and a lot of... You know, not not a lot of different uh, conversations off it, so there's a little bit of interpretation. But I feel like he probably did have like a good nutritious, you know, meal plan to be able to you know maintain what he was yeah. doing, what his body was. I think he probably just saw a lot of people gorging themselves in athletics, thinking that like, oh, if I eat like 14, you know, chickens and uh, and I do and I do this, it's going to pay off in a way that. Just, just is just wasting those calories, and uh, you know, like not not letting you get to where you need to be. I could be completely wrong because, once again, just going off of uh, you know a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, no, it's true. But yes, we always are going to be a little cynical anytime a heavyweight wants to nitpick other people's diets. Well, at least he's not like Hackenschmidt and drinking uh, like all like you know four gallons of milk every single yeah, day. Yeah, you know, so. maybe you know at the time, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe that's a pretty common practice. Is just every there's so much bullshito dietary advice for athletes at the time. Oh yeah, no, this was the the era of medical quacks. This was yeah. the era of snake oil salesmen of, totally. of people trying to sell you enemas and uh, you know all all these crazy things that are more uh, you know like they're cons as opposed to being scientific, but. Uh, you know that's uh, that is that is the world uh, where 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 they lived and he soon got back into into the wrestling world in december 1904 he participated in a tournament at the metropole theater in hamburg germany zabisco finished third yet somehow made the mistake of saying he took fifth in his book maybe the only time a wrestler sold himself short from there he went to the Circus Bush in Berlin and took on a very tough Omer de Bullion, whom Zabisco beat after 46 minutes of wrestling, when Zabisco threw him so hard that de Bullion was KO'd for 12 minutes and had to be revived by doctors. Oh. I assume that this was either a work or an exaggeration, because if you're KO'd for 12 minutes, you are never going to be okay again. Yeah, 12 minutes is like like long enough to die pretty much yeah you know? it's like if you're if you're out or a for, coma or something yeah that's technically a coma like if you are so brain traumatized that you're unconscious for 12 minutes congrats like you're gonna have to like relearn how to feed yourself like if, if <sighs> the best case scenario but it makes for a good story and makes an even better story because he then claimed that the berlin police surrounded him assuming he murdered Debillon and they were going to arrest him for it insane story or insane truth that made him a star in germany that's awesome he did like the reverse goldberg entrance to leave the ring like hey, yes you're too dangerous come with us yeah it's, it's one of those things where it's like i don't believe that at all but it makes for a great uh, a great story totally and, and now he's now he's taken out too many took out the giants and now he's been surrounded by the police yes and from there, he was off to Finland for a bit. And after Finland, he went to Paris for another huge tournament in 1906. The two big matches he had in this tournament were against Ahmed Madrali and Georg Lurich. The Turkish wrestler Madrali had been running through everyone at this point and was the favorite to win the tournament. Zabisco beat him in under an hour and later claimed that 5,000 people were turned away from the sold out venue. 
because of course somebody's out there with a clicker, you know, counting the number of people to get turned away. He was. He was personally, personally taking tickets. And in the finals, he beat Lurich just past the 50-minute wow. mark. Not that uh, Lurich would admit that when uh, hyping himself in America years later. Yeah, I was gonna say that, that didn't that didn't make the uh, All Access uh, Google Channel. Yeah, that's a um, that's pretty impressive though. If, especially if that was like a legitimate uh, shoot competition, which I kind of assume it was based on what it was. Yeah, those ones tended to be on the up and up yeah. because they were prestigious. They were like, you know, kind of like on the, uh, you know, same same level as, uh, you know, like the, the Olympic wrestling. It was something yeah. where it was very old world. It was very prestigious. It was not the circus. It wasn't the Wild West American catch totally. style. It was something that had a lot of dignity to it i guess is the way to put it where you know hippodroming would just be just not even on the, yeah. on the wavelengths which is why you know so many of those tournaments have uh you know the the it's like oh a two-hour draw followed by a one hour 56 minute uh uh win because it's once again greco-roman is not fun to watch especially uh in in this type of uh you know rules and lack of time limits or rounds or anything like that so nothing that can be that joyless would be a work <laughs> yeah totally because that would not be the finish i would call darling no and in 1906 he began training in catch wrestling as well training hard going at it with you know everything he needed to do to learn the style because that was the style one typically had to compete in when visiting england and the united states Greco-Roman had really fallen off, or in England's uh, case, not really ever caught on completely, and he needed those skills. He was applying himself. He knew what he wanted and how he needed to get there. And another savvy move was changing his name from Stanislaw Sejenowicz uh, to Stanislaw Zabisco. This is where he officially got that name because he knew Western European and American audiences would remember and more importantly, be able to pronounce that name. So it would be a marketing, a branding move. It was uh, you know, very good to say, okay, you know what? The, the English, the Americans, they're not gonna be able to say this fucking thing. Give them something that rolls off the tongue a little bit uh, better and also makes me look like a badass to anybody who read this book. So did, did that, was that done in an attempt to sort of like buy himself time and sort of plant himself as not as accomplished when he got here? Because usually if you're going to change your name, that's not something you do after you've already started making your name. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. But keep in mind, this is also back in the days where you know, you could really just show up on the sh on the shores of America. Say, I won 16 tournaments uh, in Budapest, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm the guy who, uh, you know, made George Hackenschmidt uh, hand over his lunch money. You could tell whatever wild tales you wanted, whether they were true or whether they were uh, bullshit. It was very hard to verify anything. So I feel like this was actually a smart move. He actually had the skills to back everything up, but now he does a name change for branding and marketing purposes so that the Americans, the, the Britons, they would be able to pronounce it better and remember him better and most importantly, sell him better. Yeah, so he's, he's continuing to evolve. You know, he's changing his name up. He's changing his game up. He's adding catch style, which is really smart. He's still young and going into his prime. So this is, he's, he's really developing like a true like mixed style here, which is pretty awesome because he's coming at it with like a worker's 
mindset and philosophy and a sort of Greco base, but now he's like supplementing and rounding it out with catch and submission, and that's really cool. Yeah, because he was part of that generation that saw that you had to do these things. You had to learn this style to be a star in this market, whether it is that that just you know, warrior competitiveness or if it's I need to brand myself and expand in order to succeed and make the most money, whichever version, he knew that this was the move to make. And in his autobiography, this is where we get another wild one because he claims around this time he fell in love again got engaged. Then a dastardly opera singer stole her away from him. Thankfully, no duel was necessary. He stated, perhaps for the first time in the history of the world, a tenor competed against an athlete and won the fight. Whoa. So he like simultaneously reenacted uh, the Boys to Men storyline from Fresh Prince and uh, got the uh, the Phantom of the Opera angle all in one, that's pretty remarkable. And if you think that's the first time that an athlete lost a girl to a uh, musician or an artist, you've never been to Seattle. <laughs> so he went on to Moscow looking to get a match with top Russian wrestler Ivan Padubi. Apologies to his ghost if I uh, said that wrong. And one night, Zabisco and his old pal uh, Petlizinski showed up at one of Podubny's matches and challenged him publicly. Very, very pro wrestling. But Podubny wanted Zabisco to put up some money as a guarantee, which Zabisco couldn't cover. So later, uh, Podubny showed up at one of Stanislaus's matches and did the same thing, calling him out. And this drummed up plenty of publicity and interest. So they finally had their match in St. Petersburg in front of a packed house. And they went to a two-hour, 15-minute draw. But it's the early 1900s, so it got rave reviews and offers for a rematch in London. Whether this was legitimate or not, it, it really is a great way to, to build interest in a match and then make them both look strong by going to a draw. But what does it sound like you? Does it sound like a hippodrome? I would say it's highly likely. My, my hippodrome radar is definitely at yellow alert on that one. Several reasons. One... It sounds like it might have been a shootout of the gate. He came and challenged, you know, the local guy to get the match that he wanted. That's, that's a very shoot thing to do, you know, very Rocky Three Mr. T kind of thing. You've had your shot, now give me mine. But then, he, you know, it's almost like, oh, it went so well. And, you know, he, he got big dog on the bank there. And actually, a very, that's a very interesting thing that you said that about the money. Because one time, a long time ago, uh, my sensei and Tito Ortiz and several other people at one of these fight camps for Team Punishment had a conversation about what do you do if somebody picks a fight with you in a bar because you're a fighter or whatever. And what they told me to say was, you say to the guy, you know, what is your profession? Oh, you're a plumber. Oh, you're a garbage man, whatever. Well, I'm a professional fighter, meaning I do this for money. So how much money do you have on you? How much money do you have in your wallet? Because my minimum fee is $500 or whatever you were going to say. So it sounds like that is a very old time kind of way to get out of that situation in that moment. And then he reversed it on him because he actually had the bank and went and applied the same tactic to the kid at his situation. 
that's when I that's when I think the work was in. Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like at first it was probably a a legitimate attempt to make a match, and then the guy was like, "Go fuck yourself," and then he kind of maybe asked, "Who is this guy?" And yeah. he got the reaction and went, "You know what? We could probably uh, make a couple of bucks on this one and see where it goes." Not uh, you know placing accusations against the dead, but it just kind of feels that way. Well, that's how we would have done it. No, a hundred percent, and. After another tournament in August 1907, placing joint first with Georg Lurich and another in Budapest where he did not place, he was off to London. London, the uh, the, the, the gold standard of, uh, of wrestling in Western Europe at this point, the Alhambra Theater Tournaments, Hackett Schmidt is now a resident. It really was turning into a prestigious place to be an athlete at the time. There, Leon Dumont and Charles B. Cochran, who was a big part of getting Hackett-Schmidt his first run in the United States, planned the match between Zabisco and Ivan Podubny. The winner was going to meet George Hackett-Schmidt. And keep in mind that this was before Hackett-Schmidt's first loss to Frank Gotch, so he was still the golden goose that everyone wanted a piece of. He was still the standard, he was still the box office draw. No dings in his reputation at that point. And this match that we just discussed took place on December 7th, 1907. According to the papers, Podubny was DQ'd around the 35-minute mark after repeated fouls and finally using a kick to the shins to sweep him. And Zabisco, he clearly wasn't too mad since he was paid enough for this one to buy a house in Krakow. But yeah, they set up this big international match, move it from Russia to London for the rematch, and that's why I kind of feel like this one was most likely a shoot because it sounds like it was very unsatisfying to uh, the audience in every way, the way this Russian guy just kept fouling his, uh, his, his opponent. Yeah, one, one thing that I have, have noticed a theme on these things is no matter how organically or inorganically the hippodrome kind of manifests and, and develops and the dominoes fall, at the, end, at the end of the program, somebody's still got to lay down. And a lot of these guys, even if they're willing to work it for a time, when it comes to who's going to get the lion's share and who's going to get the prestige coming out of it, you know, it's that uh, doesn't work for me, brother, type of thing. And then you get a lot of these shitty blow-offs just uh just a consistent situation to produce shitty blow-offs because that's what we're finding time and time again in these in these deep dives looking back and whether that match was just a bad shoot or a badly put together uh, work who knows but moving into 1908 zabisco was caught in a major wrestling sports scandal in january he was approached by a wrestler named kara solomon during an open challenge the match for some reason didn't happen and it's just listed as kara not meeting the satisfactory conditions required for the challenge whatever that means huh. but they did have a match soon after and stanislaus quickly pinned kara solomon but someone tipped off the local papers that Kara Solomon was actually a Bulgarian wrestler named Ivan Oftarov, who was working for Charles B. Cochran, who was promoting all of Zabisco's matches in the UK. So this is a the early, early, early dirt sheets example of, of somebody getting the scoop and trying to, to break the hippodrome wide open, as they say. Um, 
I, I, I guess that's a big story, right? So he basically, what, he beat up his training partner that they just brought in? Yeah, as the Sporting Life newspaper summed it up, we cannot deny that there is a certain element of humor in the situation. Here are two foreign wrestlers hoaxing the British public as it has not been hoaxed for many a long day. There were challenges and counter-challenges, affected quarrels, threatened break-off of negotiations, meetings at the sportsman office, the deposit of money on behalf of Mr. Constantine Papiani, who does not exist, charges of skin greasing, and to crown it all, hot water baths for the two friends who were soon to be in each other's deadly embrace. How these two fellows must have enjoyed their baths with their tongues in their cheeks while the deluded British public were rolling up from their thousands to pay for admission to see the wrestling. It is more like a bit from a comic opera than anything we have ever heard of in the world of sport. While we admit to the humor of the situation, we cannot shut our eyes to the seriousness of the matter, and we ask... How long is the generous-hearted supporter of wrestling to be imposed upon these gentlemen from the continent? If a state of matters exists such as we have shown existed between Zabisco and Solomon, what confidence can we have that when the men, after due palaver, do meet, we are to have real, honest wrestling, both at the pavilion and at the Holborn Zabisco and Solomon gave, quote, good shows, but the story we have disclosed of Zabisco paying for Solomon's board and lodging since he stayed at Kennington Road does not reassure us that the two men were really trying. Is this wrestling farce never to end? So... This guy, it was a challenge match. They, they, they built it up. They had the actual match. He wins, and then it turns out that, yeah, uh, Zabisco's manager was paying this other guy's bills under a uh, fake name. Well, you know what, though? I mean, in and of itself, first of all, calm down, uh, you know, Proto Meltzer. That's some deep, you know, this guy really got under the, under the thumbnail, didn't he? He got the dirt. Second, like, let's, you know, let's look at this in a little bit wider context. I'm sure there are very small pipelines of talent coming from other countries and other parts of the world at that time. So if you were from anywhere near a recent, uh, a recent, like, look at, like, anybody who comes from anywhere near Khabib nowadays, he's probably affiliated with them or helping to pay for their training. And, like, like or, like, when um, Frazier actually uh, bankrolled Ali's comeback fight training camp because he needed an opponent. It wasn't that he was trying to work with him, but they, other than he wanted to have that opponent. But sometimes it's not just so cut and dry that, oh, they're paying for him, it's a work. He could, you know, you pay for your, your opponents and your sparring partners. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm giving him too much credence there, but I think that that's not just an automatic, oh, the fix is in. I, I agree. There is a, a lot of a uh, lot of lot of third options, a lot of fourth options, a lot of gray area, a lot of overlap in, uh, in in motivations and purpose. But I feel in this situation, yeah, this was just them bringing in some uh, European jobber to uh, help pad the stats and make him look even better. We weren't there, but it just kind of feels like that is the case. But. Scandal aside, Zabisco still remained in England until May 1908, traveling the country and performing, wrestling, whatever you want to call it. He returned to continental Europe for one final circuit tour before departing to the United States. English press aside, which is obviously hard to immediately disseminate to the States, he arrived in the U.S. with a lot of expectation behind him. He was a foreigner. He was 
a wrestler schooled in a foreign style. He was strong and spoken of in the same hushed tone that one used when discussing Hackenschmidt. He was there to challenge the golden boy of American wrestling, Frank Gotch, and wanted to beat him for his title. The press made him sound like Ivan Drago from Rocky IV before he even arrived in the country. Well, then it sounds like he did, his, he did his work very well in terms of crafting this persona and, and building this reputation and this aura before he even crossed the pond. That's tremendous because he's coming over already considered a deep threat. And that's, a, that's, a pretty, that's pretty astonishing because a lot of what we have seen with the European guys is that they've had to come over here and sort of establish himself separately beyond their previous reputation but he's coming out as like the next big thing and i feel like a lot of the european wrestlers even you know in, in the hack days uh they, they were always more or less seen in the same spectacle sense that uh you know like if, like if they were going to see king kong you know fucking uh, you know, chained up on display they they were going to see a a bizarre foreign spectacle a muscle man who's a gonna do these like feats of strength and he's from a faraway land where for all we know there are still werewolves uh you know on the prowl so it, it feels like these guys came in with like just hearts full of dignity but mostly were treated like circus freaks but so long as they paid the ticket price right yeah man you, anything to, anything to get them to get their ass in the seat and kicking things off on October 7th, 1909, Zabisco faced and beat three men in one night. He traveled and dominated anyone he was matched up with. The only real blemishes were failing to throw a man or men in enough time in a time-limited handicap match, the type of thing we'd see in kind of the, the circus uh, you know, style matches where it's, oh, I will uh, you know, throw both these men uh, six times within an hour, and then you technically lose because because, you know, you couldn't throw them enough, even though you were throwing them plenty. That was the only spot on his record that uh, just didn't show total dominance. Yeah, and that's that's what we see with a lot of the great uh, careers is that they the only blemishes are they didn't get three falls in a set amount of time or whatever. They didn't, you know, they didn't run up the score enough, basically. So, I mean, for his stage in the game, that's pretty tremendous. Yeah, and speaking of that type of match, on Thanksgiving of 1909, Zabisco had his first match against Frank Gotch. According to the November 27th Quincy Daily Herald, the two met on Thanksgiving in Buffalo, New York. It was billed as a handicap match where Gotch had to throw Zabisco twice within an hour in front of 10,000 people. Wow. And Stanislaus managed to outlast his smaller American opponent and was not thrown a single time in the time limit and afterwards he exclaimed that he could throw gotch at a straight match he was sure of it and pushed for a real shot at the champ and this is a fun time to look at how gotch you i feel like he used this strategy a lot where he would you know pick an opponent and who he could probably beat easily do a handicap match you know go to a draw off of something because you know gotch at this point was in mike tyson territory he was you know, almost like ruining his own draw by being too good at what he did, but he was smart enough to build people up through a little bit of a work here, a little bit of a work there, to make sure that it was interesting enough for people to buy tickets. Yeah, he saw himself a quality opponent potential in uh, in the you know the body type, the 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 background. It's perfect to be able to say, yeah, this again. 
well, going back to the the body type for Greco, you know, Zabisco is the hardest guy to get leverage on. Somebody built like that, um, so it, it totally makes sense that Gotts would see that and just think, yeah, okay, that is entirely believable that I couldn't get under this, you know, this fire hydrant and throw him. So now it sets up an actual program and it shows that he really is a is a, a crafty, crafty worker, man. Especially since we have to realize this was after the first Gotch Hackenschmidt match, where he, you know, fouls aside, kind of ran through Hackenschmidt, and now he had to work extra hard to build people up again yeah. to make them look like credible threats so that people would want to come see him defend his title in what they think would be an, an epic match between equals, which wasn't always the case. Um, Zabisco spent 1910 touring nonstop and possibly two nonstop because he was booked to wrestle sometimes six nights in a row in six different cities and travel wasn't exactly easy in those days. We're not talking a nice car ride on the highway or a, uh, or, or a flight. It was a little more grueling and he dropped from 260 to about 210 pounds over, uh, over, over this tour. Wow. Still, he took on and defeated Tom Jenkins. Charles Cutter, Dr. Benjamin Roller, and other American grapplers. The Benjamin Roller match makes me kind of wonder how on the up and up that was, rebuilding towards a, uh, a match against Gotch, since I kind of feel like we discussed a couple episodes ago how I feel like Roller kind of did the favor with uh, Lurich to build Lurich up to be a, a credible threat. Once again, we weren't there, we can't say, but that's kind of what it feels like to me. Yeah, it sounds like a rinse and repeat kind of situation with building up your foreign, foreign menace booking. You've got your standard sort of positioned guys in the territory that have this opportunity to help build this guy back up. And this time, Gotch is a lot smarter about uh, uh, keeping, his, keeping his heels strong, as they say. And he did another master stroke because on... March 29th, 1910 at the Coliseum in Chicago, Stanislaw Zabisco faced off against the terrible Turk, Yusuf Malmut. And yes, this is yet another terrible Turk. Any Ottoman wrestler from this period was a terrible Turk by default. It was the way they sold it all the way back to that, uh, you know, you can hear more about that in the uh, Evan Lewis uh, episodes that from, from, uh, from last year. But against Mahmoud, with whomever won this match getting a shot at Gotch and his title, Stanislaus won in two straight falls, totaling one hour and 57 minutes of wrestling, which is, I don't know if you know this, quite a lot. Wow, that's, that's, that's a battle, man. That makes, me, that makes me think that it might have been on the up and up. What do you think? Oh, I feel like it was. Anytime that goes that long yeah. and it's probably that, uh, that, that boring, I feel like that's going to be a, a, a straight shooting match, if you will. But now, having beaten uh, the Turk, Zabisco was now set up as the perfect monster heel. He is foreign, he is strong, and beating everyone in his path. He's got that European dignity against the, the brashness of the American. It's, it's a perfect character clash. It's the perfect way to build up two combatants in the press to the point where people will want to see them go at it. And this match happened on June 1st, 1910 at the Exposition Building in Chicago, and it drew 8,000 people. Not quite what they drew in uh, New York for their first match, but I feel Chicago felt a little burnt after that, that first Hackenschmidt match. And things didn't go exactly as planned for the Polish grappler. 
There are several accounts of the first fall, which lasted six seconds. That's right, six seconds. But the most consistent and believable version is the match started, Gotch put his hand out to shake Zabisco's, and when Stanislaus reached out in this sportsman-like gesture, Gotch shot under for a double leg and dumped Zabisco right on his shoulders for a fall. He was pissed. He was yelling at the ref, and the match nearly didn't get restarted, but eventually they went back at it, and after 27 and a half minutes, Gotch submitted Zabisco with an armbar wrist lock combo, and that I feel like 100% this is a, uh, a legit shoot match across the board. And I feel like Zabisco uh, might have looked like more of a threat than Gotch would normally let on because that is a dirty fucking thing to do. Dude, welcome to the big leagues, kid. That is heel life personified. That is such a dick move. I mean, imagine the the roar on sports center if that sort of thing happened today anytime you see that we've seen a knockout mayweather had something like that a few years ago you see that from time to time where somebody does that dirty fake touch of the gloves and then swings on them it's really that's i mean technically not illegal but it is bad form but you're absolutely right what that tells me is that he he felt that that was a legitimate threat as an opponent that he had to take every single shortcut and every single advantage that he could to secure victory otherwise otherwise the the hero doesn't take the shortcut especially right out of the gate like that if that really speaks volumes to how viable of a threat that he saw in front of him right there. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Gotch never had a problem with a foul. He never had a problem with a uh, dirty trick. Uh, you know, you can see that in uh, his first match with Hackenschmidt where he was pretty much throwing punches and getting away with it because the referee was his biggest fan. And there were other matches where he really, uh, you know, roughed people up. But usually it was after they did something. And maybe, you know, maybe Gotch had the flu. Maybe he, you know, had a, had a twisted ankle and knew his uh, gas tank was limited. And maybe he was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I don't feel like, uh, you know, having a long day today. Whatever the situation is in his mind, he justified it. Still an absolute fucking dick move, but it did make me laugh. Well, and it also got the job done because let me tell you, when, when regardless of whether or not that helped or hurt the psychology of of how his opponent's going to react to that he's up on a scoreboard baby and he he was defeated he was uh you know sent packing with two straight falls yeah. and i know what some of you are thinking nick chongo what chance did he have he was a greco-roman wrestler with no knowledge of submissions or leg attacks but obviously you weren't listening because for more than a year at this point, he had been training in catch wrestling and competing against top stars in the sport under those rules. And he was an athletic freak and had a strong base in Greco-Roman and quickly learned the rules, moves, and strategies of catch as catch can. However, he didn't really think he needed to play the politics or fit into the wrestling landscape of America at the time. He saw himself as the guy who would emerge as the new champion, the new leader, the new man to reshape the sport in his image, and his loss to Gotch changed that entirely. He claimed that he had just learned of his father's death back in Europe and should not have competed, and if true, that can absolutely wreck an athlete's mental state but he still showed up and stepped up. 
he also faced accusations that the match was of a hippodrome and that he laid down to gotch for a payday and betrayed all the Polish Americans that came out to support him. And in the end, the match was so one-sided that there was no clamor or expectation of a rematch like so many before and after. Frank Gotch was so dominant that he killed his career in the States. Well, yeah, it's like, oh, you were doing good for a second there, old gotchy boo. You're building up that proper heel, and then, boom, you couldn't help yourself, man. That, that's a... Uh that's just bad booking is what that is. And we see this time and time again. We saw it with uh, Lurch. We saw it with many others where Gotch just like, kind of like passively let somebody build up for, uh, you know, for a good payday, a good, uh, a, good bit, a good bit of business. And then he goes out and goes, you know what? I don't got all day. I'm not, I'm not paid by the hour. And, you know, and I feel like that second fall being almost half an hour was probably him kind of toying with, uh, you know, with Zabisco to a certain extent, just to make sure people got their their money's worth and didn't uh, complain or accuse them of uh, of, uh, of hippodroming. And like I said, it was, it was so one sided and so dominant that you know you, you get beat in a way where there's no there's nobody expects a rematch. Nobody really wants to see this happen. You've been completely stomped into a fucking hole. And where do you go from there? Like so many of these wrestlers, it's like there's no there's there's no conceivable place outside of. You know, trying to put together you know crazy matches like the way uh, Lorich did, trying to call out uh, Zabisco around uh, around this time, but you know that it, it really you know when you have a champion that dominant and you you finally run into that buzzsaw, it puts you in a position of what now? Yeah, you either have to you know we've seen so many's careers just completely derailed or ended at that point, but the only other option that you have is to just reinvent yourself and continue to evolve, and hopefully he's. We're still at a point where he is not, but it feels like, especially knowing that you made it to the top guy and then he took the shortcut on you, that's the path to, to the dark side, man, where the, where the villain feels justified in his own story because it's like, man, the, God cheated me. Fuck that. That wasn't fair. That, I could see where that would have the reverse effect and where it's going to double down on his dedication and now he's going to be the ultimate heel. Yeah, like there have been fights in MMA where a guy gets an eye poke and the ref doesn't see it, or a, a shot to the balls and the ref doesn't see it, and it it, it, it you know, in, and then a big fight uh, ends in a, a very strange way where it shouldn't have if the ref had uh, had noticed that. This was an unsportsmanlike move, but it wasn't illegal. The American crowd clearly uh, is behind their uh, their rough and tumble boy. The uh, you know everybody's uh, you know on the side of the guy who did the shitty thing. What do you do? You know, you can't stand up to the bully when he's the, uh, you know, the coolest kid in the class. Yeah, when he can kick the shit out of you and is just playing with you. It's just, it's really cold, but it, it just, it speaks to the tenacity of Gotch, man. And this is a great place to put a pin in the story of Stanislaus Zabisco. And when we come back in two weeks, we're not going to be talking about him again. We're going to be kind of catching up with a lot of these important characters from this time, from this era, until we kind of get to the uh, the point where all these stories converge. They kind of become the uh, the Avengers after everybody's origin story has been done. We're going to be telling some crazy stories, and all of these lives are going to start intertwining into a story that made wrestling in the 1920s the insane thing it was and how it laid the groundwork for professional wrestling up until this day. Yeah, this is such a cool point in where we have gotten on this show 
as far as the the backstory that we are now the 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 amount that we have filled in on the collective backstory to this culmination like you said the avengers is a total analogy for it where all of these all of these personal journeys are going to intertwine and what's going to come out of it is is going to create the wrestling business that we know today man and i can't wait to get there but you you've got to join us on this journey for the uh, the next several episodes as we explore this crazy pocket this this epoch this 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 moment in time where pro wrestling stopped being the mostly legitimate sometimes worked or sometimes worked mostly legitimate however you want to do it depending on the era type of sport and became the slam bang entertainment that uh, everyone grew to love but that's for uh, that's for next time. So um, for now, I hope you enjoyed the story of Stanislaw Zabisco up until his match with Frank Gotch. I hope you enjoyed listening to our dumbasses talk about whatever the hell it is we uh, do when we get distracted. Make sure you you know like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, check out our Instagram. I like to find fun uh, old uh, articles and just post them as I find them. So it's not really you know apropos to the topic of the show, but you'll see some good glimpses into the history of wrestling through our eyes. Um, so yeah, we'll see you next time. I guess we'll talk to you next time. We won't see you. That'd be weird if you were in the room. So for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Until next time, folks. Peace, nerds. Where's my martini?